News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, have you ever wondered about the historical and cultural significance of the letter X? You might remember back in math class, solving, finding the meaning of X. It is also something that has been studied at length. And joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Pete Schumer, Baldwin Professor of Mathematics and Natural Philosophy at Middlebury College. Thank you so much for taking some time to to talk more about this this morning. Thank you so much, Jill. Very happy to join you and your listeners. It, it is something I think that, that maybe we don't spend or, or, or a lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about, but how did you get involved in this and trying to figure out uh, kind of why the letter X it tends to be such a mysterious letter? <laughs> um, uh, well, uh, I, I teach mathematics. I'm a math professor at Middlebury College, in, uh, which is a liberal arts college in Vermont. Um, and I teach a history of mathematics class. Um, and some years ago, I was contacted by um, uh, people at The Conversation, um, which is an online uh, journal. And I, I wrote about uh, when human beings first began to count. Um, and so they contacted me this summer just because there was a TED um, uh, presentation where someone came up with a very unique and kind of new theory of where X came from. And they wrote to me to ask if I would respond to that. Uh, and it was somewhat, um, it, uh, I, I didn't fully buy, <laughs> to be honest, uh, the TED Talk, but I did learn from it. It, was, it inspired me to delve more deeply into it myself and uh, just to learn more on my own. And I must say, uh, I don't know everything about it myself, which is why I enjoy having a conversation <laughs> and uh, picking up on other people's expertise as well. What did you find, though, as far as it goes back to, to some ancient civilizations with mathematical yeah, uh, systems? And, and, and what, what were you able to find out about it? Yes, well, um, so uh, algebra has developed over millennia, um, and like most mathematics, it's developed over a long period of time, uh, which I tell my students, don't feel bad if you're in trouble with math. It, it took centuries, millennia to, to develop. Um, and so there are different forms of algebra in Babylonian times and in ancient Egypt. And um, uh, a lot of that learning was lost and during the, uh, the Arabs, during the Islamic scholars, um, actually translated much of that. So the theory from the, uh, just cut me off if you want at any point, but the theory from the TED Talk, uh, which was given by someone named Terry Moore, uh, who, who's a director of, I think, something called the Radius Foundation. Um, his theory was that, um, and then I'll say one other theory <laughs> that I believe, um, was that uh, the Islamic scholars called the unknown, you know, which we now call X, uh, al-Shayun, which means the something, and they shortened al-Shayun to the first letter, which is sheen, but has an sh sound. And then according to him, and I fully agree with that, uh, according to him, when it was translated into, in Europe, which he takes to be Spanish scholars, uh, they didn't really have an sh sound, just because modern um, Castilian Spanish doesn't have an sh sound. But uh, actually, ancient um, Castilian did. But according to him, they didn't have an SH sound. 
so they chose the Greek letter chi, <laughs> which looks kind of like a Latin letter X. And then it trans, it, you know, there was a bunch of, uh, over the centuries, it eventually became the letter X. And from his point of view, that's the end of the story, and everyone's used X ever since. My own feeling is that there may be some truth to that, and I found that quite interesting. Um, however, um, there's no single thread, really. There's so many people and cultures that developed mathematics, and the communi- uh, communication was not what it is today. Um, so I think it's much more likely um, that uh, many different words were used, as I've been able to find out, for the unknown often color names like blue, red, yellow, um, the silver thing, uh, the thing, the heap, (laughs) all sorts of uh, other words were used for it. And when René Descartes, um, you know, the French uh, philosopher and mathematician, uh, he wrote a a book called Discourse on the Method of Reasoning Well and Seeking Truth in the Sciences. And this was a, a major breakthrough in philosophy. And his idea was to place philosophy and religion and ethics on a more firmer basis, which he considered mathematics to be. And one of the appendices, there's three appendices to this book from um, 1637, uh, was called La Geometry. And La Geometry, he uses X. Um, He he used letters like A, B, C to stand for uh, unspecified constants and for variables, letters that could change. He used Z, Y, X, sort of working backwards. And it's thought that since X is not used much in the French language, just like it's not much used in the English language, uh, the printer had lots of extra X's around that they'd use for their movable type. Um, And so they kind of hit on using X quite a bit. (laughs) And that book became very, um, um, you know, sort of book that everyone read. and, And at that point, there were many copies. So... So I think that's more likely where X came about. But but the story's clearly not a linear story, even the one that I tell. So no, I, and it's so it's kind of fascinating to look at the different theories on where it came from and the use of it today. When you think of things like Xmas, if you if you can't possibly say Christmas in its long form or X rays, and and just the use of the letter. Yes, that's true. Well, X, like uh, the letter X in, you know, comes from Latin prefix EX or, and, you know, means from or without or beyond, you know, like words like extend, exceed, uh, exit, appendectomy, actually, <laughs> excising, <laughs> eject, emit, things like that. Um, and so uh, somehow it eventually meant beyond normal or beyond. So uh, when the German physicist Wilhelm Rentgen uh, discovered x-rays uh, when he was experimenting with cathode ray tubes and things. He meant it to mean something beyond what he, un- he understood, this sort of unknown. Um, and same thing with X-Men, um, Marvel Comics, um, which has uh, the X-Men are these people, as you know, no doubt, <laughs> have like an X-gene and they have superhuman capabilities, etc. By the way, the X and X-Miss... Um, was used, it's not really a, a recent thing. Um, like the word Christos for Christ, uh, the Greek word for it starts with a chi letter, um, you know, Christ meaning anointed or covered in oil. And so the chi monogram, or chi with rho, which is the Greek R, was often used to shorten Christmas. 
uh, even back in official Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox writings as far back as the 16th century. So it's not a new laziness on our part. It's really had a long tra- tradition. So that, that definitely does come from the Greek chi in that case. All right. Uh, I'm sorry to cut you off there. We'll no, have fine. to leave it there for this morning, though. But I thank you so much for joining us. And again, okay. such interesting, interesting research. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, we are taking a look now at what is happening in the Shoe Swamp area of BC. Many people forced from their homes. And Alyssa Carpenter is in that part of the province and joining us now. Alyssa, thank you so much for your time this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. What are you seeing as far as damage and what's happening with the wildfires there? Well, I'm just going to set the scene for you. I'm actually on the other side of the blockade, uh, just at the edge of uh, Sorrento. And the road is closed between Sorrento and Chase, uh, Highway 1 westbound there. Um, so what I'm seeing is just a huge blockade. But I've been able to speak to the, the uh, folks that are up at that blockade. And they tell me that in the last uh, 24 hours or so, it's really been a, a war zone on the other side of that blockade. There were down power lines. There was fire at one point raging on both sides of the highway. Um, we don't have a, a count in terms of how many structures, homes, other buildings have been lost, but we do know that damage through there is extensive. Uh, visibility was next to none, and that's why they have to uh, keep traffic out of the area. And it it just sounds uh, like uh, stress levels, uh, obviously very, very high. Uh, You mentioned structures. So at this point, is it it much like I think what we're hearing from other uh, areas where there are wildfires and that people know that structures have been lost, but at this point, uh, nobody really knows the numbers or kind of the extent of it? Yeah, and you know what? It's um, it's a frustrating situation for a lot of people. I actually uh, had a chance to speak to someone who they were told their home was gone by neighbors. They were sitting in a camper somewhere waiting for word. They get word that their home is gone. And then when they were able to return, hoping to grab whatever belongings were left, their home was still standing. So they spent 24 hours already on the phone with insurance, already trying to figure out how to rebuild before they found out they, in fact, didn't lose their home, but people they loved had lost homes uh, around them. What we're hearing is basically the same message, as you said, that we were hearing in Kelowna and other parts of the province, that right now the priority is to fight the fires, to get everything under control, to make this area safe for people to return to, and then we start to tally up the damages and how many buildings uh, have been lost and need to be rebuilt. And what are you hearing about resources? And I know there are fire crews that have come in from other parts of the province that are working as much as they can to fight the various wildfires. But what are you hearing about the resources that are being used for the Bush Creek fire? You know, we uh, have been speaking to people who are displaced, um, who are sleeping in parking lots in their campers. And and there's a lot of frustration um, that there aren't more resources here. And perhaps that's a perception thing. We do know that there are a lot of volunteer firefighters. We've seen them come and go from that blockade that are in there. Some of those guys are working, you know, 20 hours at a time, sleeping for three or four hours and getting back at it. Some of them have lost their own homes, but are still helping to save others. So the question around here has been, why aren't we seeing more firefighters from other jurisdictions come in? Surely you could free up a few trucks and some firefighters to help us here. 
Um, it's really been a, a mobilization of community, people trying to fight, you know, fires and save other people's homes with sprinklers, with hoses when available. Sometimes there just isn't any power. You can't use the pumps to, to pump any water. But when they can, they've been sort of taking matters into their own hands here. And in fact, when I talked to uh, the wildfire service yesterday afternoon, he said that uh, people had been taking matters into their own hands in an attempt to save their own homes, their neighbors' homes, in a way that was actually hampering efforts. So there is firefighter equipment over in Scotch Creek, for example, that's been sort of placed in strategic areas so that firefighters know where to grab it when they need it. People are coming along, apparently seeing this equipment, thinking it's being abandoned and picking it up to go and save their neighbor's home, thinking they're doing the right thing. They didn't steal it, more like borrowed it. But then the firefighters who put that equipment there come back and it's not there and and there's some confusion about where it's gone and it hampers those efforts even further. Yeah, we were we were hearing about uh, the the equipment as well, and, and you're right. Uh, it sounds uh, like awful that someone has taken it, but uh, it's people like you said that are, are doing whatever they can, trying to save homes. Um, Alyssa, j- just before I let you go, what is the air quality like where you are? So right now uh, it's sitting at an 11, and that's the highest that it can go. There isn't a lot of wind, which is good in terms of not fanning any more flames, of course, but it's not great in terms of blowing that smoke out of here because one of the other uh, complaints that we've been hearing over and over again from people here on the ground is that they haven't seen a lot of support from the air. We did see uh, a chopper uh, do a retardant dump yesterday over Little Shushwap, but other than that, the visibility has been so poor that you can't get large aircraft in the air to do any drops from above. So uh, they are hoping that uh, this smoke will clear out. Right now, it's it's very calm. There are almost no winds. And there is some rain in the forecast for tonight. Of course, we know the weather can change quickly. But everyone here crossing their fingers that that rain will fall at this point. It would be like liquid gold for these people. Yeah, hopefully uh, the weather will uh, continue or or cooperate uh, more as crews uh, work at at, uh, getting these wildfires out. Alyssa, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is time for The View from Victoria. And joining us today is Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. He is here with his take on the day's headlines. Rob, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for that Taylor Swift introduction. I like that. Well, I'm supposed to ask you why you wanted Taylor Swift music for your intro. This is my penance because, you know, my bank, RBC, has done nothing good for me except somehow I got in through them to get presale tickets to Taylor Swift in Toronto. And they were sitting there in my hot little hands online. You have seven minutes to make up your mind. And I I realized (laughs) that I didn't want to go to Toronto uh, for this concert. And I thought about buying them anyways. You know how people do that and then they flip them yes. for cash. Uh-huh. And I just couldn't do it because like that's part of the problem, right? <laughs> like people who buy tickets to shows they don't want to go to and then sell them for money. And I just, and I passed on them and now I'm thinking, oh man, I don't know. Was that the right move? Was, uh, you know, like don't buy tickets to concerts you aren't going to. I think that's the I think that's the problem out there. But I guess, anyways, I guess. I mean, you could have always sold them to a friend or somebody and not taken a huge profit, and therefore helped somebody else go. 
it's it's funny with a seven minute ticket master <laughs> clock counting down how your brain starts to run through the different options and uh, you just can't figure that out. I was I was stuck. So anyways, that's my penance is Taylor Swift every day. All right. So just yeah, just to clarify, then you did not get the Taylor Swift tickets. I did, I did not. No, don't email me or text me for the tickets. I didn't get them. Rob does not have tickets to sell you to the Taylor Swift. Oh, good on you, though. I think there there are probably some Taylor Swift fans listening right now thinking maybe even throwing things at their uh, radio or listening devices going, Rob, what were you thinking? How could you pass something like that up? I could have made like three grand or something like that. Or or I could have just passed them on to people who needed them. I don't know. (laughs) Or you you could have gone to the concert yourself. I, I could have, I could have, it would have been, it would have been good. But anyways, I didn't do it. And so uh, now I'm here with you in the morning <laughs> listening to Taylor Swift. <laughs> All right. Well, the opportunity has passed, but uh, there you go. We can still listen to Taylor Swift's uh, on the radio. Uh, let's talk about, I think, what everybody is uh, talking about. And well, we're talking wildfires, but specifically as well, the, the evacuation of seniors from Kelowna. And this uh, has got to be, I mean, talk about stressful situations and difficult situations that's uh, that's a lot going on there yeah it's the biggest evacuation in bc history of seniors in this short period of time 48 hours uh, more than 900 seniors now who've been evacuated from in and around kind of that west Kelowna, Kelowna, okanagan uh, area and it's an, it's like a herculean effort you can imagine because seniors are especially frail um, there, there are different types of seniors from the long-term care seniors who require that 24-7 care. They, they might be on a, a hospital bed or they might be on a stretcher. Uh, they might have cognitive impairment like dementia or things like that. You have to find a way to, you can't rush them. You can't, the confusion and the anxiety that is going to be part of this, this move uh, requires this very careful um, planning. And then you have assisted living clients. Maybe they have a wheelchair or a cane or a walker, the independent clients, the brain injured clients. So in- interior health has to mobilize this small army of people with all of this equipment and trucks and little um, uh, ambulances and the private ambulances uh, and buses and find a way to not just move the seniors, but move them with their care plans, with their medication making sure that they, um, you know, their needs are met, that the healthcare staff is with them and get them out of there and keep them calm all at the same time. Uh, and uh, it is uh, it is quite an effort. It hasn't, hasn't, you know, got as much attention, I think, as, as fighting the wildfires itself, which is uh, certainly dramatic and has required, you know, just a, an, another Herculean effort. But getting these seniors to safety uh, in different communities, a, a bulk of which went all the way to Vancouver, actually, uh, has been quite a quite an effort indeed. Uh, and I know you've written about this uh, a column going into a, a lot more detail, but uh, I was curious about this as well because I know there were also seniors from Yellowknife that were being moved around. And I would think too, uh, on top of everything you just mentioned, even finding space to take seniors from their care homes to get them to safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some have gone to different communities and Vernon took some, but uh, I know that Yellowknife was evacuating some seniors to British Columbia. The government has managed to find a a facility in Vancouver that was closed uh, due to age that they've reactivated. So there was four buses that came down from Kelowna with seniors on them uh, with water and food. I asked the question, did they have bathrooms on the buses? 
Uh, and the answer is no. So there was a lot of pit stops for seniors to use the facilities. Uh, you couldn't have had bathrooms on the buses because they wouldn't have been able to use them anyways. If you imagine um, getting knocked around in the small little bathroom, you could actually injure a senior uh, quite easily. So this this was a long trip, hours. Uh, it was seniors, um, you know, uh, trying to keep them happy and calm to the best extent that you could and bring them down to uh, not all of them, but some of them to Vancouver and set them up there. Evacuation centers aren't suitable for seniors. The cots are too low. The facilities are loud and bright and uh, they don't have the specific needs. So you have to do something different with them. And, uh, you know, interior health uh, and the larger, you know, provincial health uh, apparatus managed to mobilize. Also, the airspace is closed in Kelowna too. So you couldn't evacuate um, by, uh, you know, plane or, or helicopter. Uh, and that would have been a, a different experience as well. So quite a, quite a trip and quite a, an effort. And, uh, um, certainly, you know, I think uh, disorienting for the seniors, but amazing that it was pulled off in the way that it was. Continuing now with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. And Rob, just before the break, we were talking about the huge, huge operation of getting seniors from long-term care homes in Kelowna to safe places. Uh, there was also some confusion, though, or maybe some questioning of the timing of the uh, declaring an emergency for the entire province of BC. How did that play out? Yeah, you know, it's okay, I think, if you're in the public and you are confused about the idea of a state of emergency and why government takes time calling it. This happens again and again. It happened in 2017, 2018, uh, just after COVID. This sort of tension between when do we call a state of emergency and what does it do and what does it mean? Uh, It technically gives the government more power to set prices uh, to uh, enter private property, to put in place travel bans, to get more federal aid that type of thing. But the government hesitates on doing it. And we saw this play out uh, on this wildfire situation Friday. Uh, we're all on a briefing, a media briefing at one in the afternoon with emergency uh, minister Bowen Ma, who said, we don't, we don't need uh, the state of emergency. We have the tools that we need right now. Uh, and she was asked, well, how much worse does it need to get before we do that? Uh, and, uh, you know, just four or five hours later, the premier has a press conference with Bowen Ma standing behind him saying, we are going into a state of emergency. We need these tools. The situation had changed dramatically in those four hours. Things had got much, much worse. People were More people were being evacuated. Um, but that initial kind of hesitancy of the tools question, we see this again and again, um, you know, uh, a debate over whether we should go into that. One of the reasons that we do, and the premier articulated this quite well, I thought, at his press conference is, It gives the appearance we are doing everything possible. That was one of the reasons he stated, the first reason he stated, that going into a provincial state of emergency tells people the government is there for you with all of its powers, extraordinary powers on the table. And yet, um, you know, we end up in this weird political bun fight almost every year now on when and how states of emergency should be declared. Uh, And then we have a press conference on Saturday. So not even 24 hours later, where uh, Bowen Ma is talking about the, it's good that we have these incredible, extraordinary powers to be used when previously she called it just an administrative step. And so, you know, if you're in the public, you're confused about this. And I think it would probably be good for government to stop having this weird debate over this issue during emergencies every year and just figure out a way to do it 
without confusing everybody in the process. Why is there such hesitancy, do you think, that uh, what, what is the downside of, uh, of calling it or declaring a state of emergency when we're seeing all of those fires? Or, or, or is, there, is there a downside in calling it earlier, say, than, than maybe you absolutely have to? Well, I think it was political in, in 2021 coming out of the COVID state of emergency that we'd been in for more than a year straight into a wildfire season. And Premier John Horgan didn't want to go into another state of emergency. We were moving to normalcy and there was a big hesitancy from government to go back weeks later into another state of emergency. Now we hear the government and the politicians say, well, this is handled inside emergency management BC, handled inside the wildfire service. They'll tell us when they need it. But when you have the worst wildfire season in BC history, ramping up to one of the worst evacuations in Kelowna's history on Friday, and no state of emergency, it doesn't make sense. It's impossible to explain that to the public in a way that makes sense. And maybe internally, there's some sliding metric chart that some official uses that doesn't reach the red line. But that is not a way to go forward when you have a situation as serious as Friday, people packing their bags, thousands of people, and there's no state of emergency until the premier comes out hours later and does it. Um, that doesn't work. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the sake of government or the officials involved or whoever is making these decisions, should probably come up with a better way of doing it so we don't end up talking about it every single time there is an evacuation, uh, which seems like it's going to happen. Um, you know, unfortunately, annually now with with climate change. Well, and it does when you talk about the additional powers that it gives government as well and the confusion. And it seems like there was some confusion also when uh, Bowen Ma said that they wanted people to not be driving to the Okanagan. It made sense. Obviously, they wanted to keep hotel rooms and keep space for evacuees. But there was even confusion there. Is, it, is there a ban against driving through the Okanagan? Can you drive through there if you have? to get through there to go somewhere else and it seemed even when the, those powers were kind of put in place it still wasn't all that clear when talking about things like like roadways and, and where people should and shouldn't be mm-hmm. well we, we learned during covid how complicated it is to execute those kind of bans what it requires remember when we we're talking about not being able to cross uh, provincial borders during covid and the idea do we have roadblocks at the borders are there police turning you away inspecting your papers people people don't like that and so government proceeds very carefully it's not, you know they use the, the the law to say don't go and they use the law to tell people you're not allowed but they also you know rely a little bit and quite a bit on people following what they're saying without having to have police check every reservation you're making and tie up resources that way so yeah the the emergency act allows them to restrict travel whether they do it to the extent that it catches everybody and how hard they crack that down, um, you know, is a kind of sliding target. But it's not, it leads to that confusion. We saw it during COVID, you know, am I allowed to do X? Can I do Y? Really complicated scenarios. Uh, remember with the back pass of, well, what if I go to a place that allows me to step in and order at a counter, but I'm not eating at the, the table because I'm at the bar stool, but I'm outside and like, does that count as a restaurant? All of these the kind of permutations um, you know, government can't handle them all during an emergency. And so they rely a little bit on just um, hoping that people listen to them and, and not try to find ways to, to find loopholes. Yeah. And that's, yeah, yeah. Just, just hearing you uh, kind of take us back there. I got a bit of a shudder uh, thinking about, Sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay, but hopefully uh, we do not have to go back to that scenario. Rob, thank you so much for this and we will talk to you again soon.
Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, there has been a lot of talk about short-term rentals and the impact those are having on rentals that could potentially be in the long-term rental market. Uh, We've also heard from BC's housing minister, there could be legislation coming that would look to restrict short-term rentals. But can we learn from other jurisdictions on what that legislation should look like to be most effective? Anna Cameron is a research associate of fiscal and economic policy at the University of Calgary and is joining us now to talk a bit more about this. Anna, thank you so much for being with us. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it uh, is an issue uh, that uh, I know it's uh, frustrating for people, whether you're in uh, the market for rental housing and you can't find it, or you're somebody that wants to run a short-term rental. I know that you've looked at this, and specifically when we talk about some jurisdictions uh, that have tried to to bring in legislation or to, to regulate this, what have you found? Yeah, so given the growth in the short-term rental market uh, in Canada in recent years, we've seen this increasing pressure on local governments in particular to adopt regulations to manage some of the impact of that growth, uh, whether that's in terms of the neighbourhood nuisance and safety, competitive concerns, of course, as you're mentioning, the impacts on housing availability. Um, And as a result of this push, we've actually seen now that the major cities in most Canadian provinces and territories have adopted regulations growing number of smaller municipalities. Um, So at this point, regulation really is uh, not a question of if, but uh, rather how and using what sort of approaches and tools. And so in comparing regulations in place across Canada, uh, as my colleagues and I have done, we find that while there are some general similarities, so for example, most if not all jurisdictions have some element of fee-based registration or a licensing scheme. Um, most if not all have operational and guest safety standards. There's also a lot of diversity when you start to look at not only the specific measures, but also the level of complexity and the restrictiveness of these frameworks. So, for example, in some jurisdictions like Calgary, you have regulations that are pretty straightforward. Um, sorry, there's an alarm going <laughs> off behind me. Uh, the licensing process isn't complex. There aren't uh, really many technical criteria for operators to meet. There aren't many caveats or limitations. And they're really permissive. There's few restrictions placed on operations. Uh, it doesn't have to be in your primary residence. There aren't quotas or spatial restrictions. Um, but then we have a handful of jurisdictions uh, in, in which uh, they're really complex and restrictive Uh, frameworks in place. So there's more than one type of license. There's more than one order of government directly involved in regulation. There are restrictions based on short-term rental type, whether it's in your home or not, the dwelling type and where it's located. So these are cities like Montreal and Quebec City. And so overall, what this indicates is that there's a lot of room to develop regulations that are aligned with and responsive to local goals and issues. So there's not really a one size fits all approach. There's lots of options to consider and learn from. And so we want to be careful in sort of drawing comparisons between jurisdictions without understanding things like local context. Uh, And it's not necessarily the case that restrictive or complex regulations are the answer in all cities. 
Right, because we've even seen it in Vancouver where there are restrictions, uh, people getting around that, whether it's using a fake license number or or posting a, a short-term rental saying it's not actually a short-term rental, but then you could actually book it that way. So it seems that even with the different types of regulations, that there are potentials or potential ways or people will try and get around them. Absolutely. I think it's been well documented that sort of compliance and enforcement has been the major issue in jurisdictions around the world when it comes to this market. Um, I mean, we're looking to regulate a market that's constantly evolving and one in which non-compliance is difficult to detect. Um, And so the two big issues we see here are sort of what you're speaking to, um, but also an issue of resources at the local level. I think uh, a a lot of local jurisdictions just don't have the staff to do things like check these listings manually to conduct the audits that they need need to uh, to work with platforms to ensure these listings are removed if they violate regulations or even to detect that they are indeed violating the regulation. Um, So I think there's two strategies that could be helpful in overcoming these particular challenges. And the first would be co-regulation with platforms. So actually requiring the platforms to assume greater responsibility for things like compliance and enforcement and to share their data, right? So this could include requiring platforms to actually register and obtain a license to operate in the jurisdiction and then attaching various conditions to that license related to record keeping and data sharing. Uh, And it could require involving the platform um, from the outset in ensuring that business license numbers are valid Uh, We're seeing this now in Quebec in the aftermath of the old Montreal fire. We're seeing the province asking Airbnb to assume a lot more of that responsibility, including by verifying whether the license number that you're entering when you're registering is actually listed or the same that is uh, the one listed on their registration certificate. And is that something that that should fall to the platform? Or I I would imagine Airbnb's argument could be, well, there's different regulations in every city. How are they supposed to to stay on top of it and know all of the rules? Yeah, so I I think that this actually uh, helps make the case for provincial regulation. I think that you see there, there is a responsibility um, for, for the platform, which which is benefiting greatly operating um, across the world. And um, so if, if it's regulated at the provincial level, um, there, there, I suppose it's fewer jurisdictions um, to, with which to, to comply. Um, and there's more leverage too from, from the province than there would be from a municipality. Uh, so, And you mentioned uh, some of the examples. Is there a place you think that's got it right or that has regulation in place that is, is working the best? Uh, it, I mean, it is, it is hard, hard to tell and the market is constantly evolving and we're seeing the pressures of that. But I think that the direction that is being taken in places like Quebec, in places like Nova Scotia and PEI, uh, where there is sort of a provincial licensing scheme and registration scheme, um, and then the opportunity for local governments to continue to uh, have local rules. So like the, the fact that the uh, provincial licensing system exists, it doesn't foreclose local governments from introducing or upholding existing measures um, in terms of zoning and uh uh, spatial requirements. I think I think that that's striking a good balance between 
um, local context, but then giving um, the province, which has more resources, uh, the ability to register and license since the uh, short-term rentals themselves. Well, it is uh, certainly interesting to see what is happening in in the various uh, different cities and jurisdictions. Uh, Anna, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. While we were talking about short-term rentals and housing just before the break, what about the idea of 3D printing homes? Could this be beneficial? Would this help tackle the housing affordability and availability in BC? Well, joining us now is Ian Commission, President of 20 Additive Manufacturing, and here to talk more about that. Thank you so much for, for your time this morning. Uh, good morning. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, what uh, do we need to know or what should we be focusing on when we're looking at this potential and 3D printing homes? Well, the first thing that makes uh, 3D printing very different than what people are used to seeing in, in British Columbia right now is, is, of course, that we're 3D printing concrete. And obviously, with the uh, fire situation that's going on through the province right now, um, homes that are built up out of materials that have a lower ignition um, potential is, uh, I think, going to be the, the way of the future, to be honest. These, these uh, floating embers that are going through the air, you know, landing on, on homes that have um, vinyl siding or, you know, cedar uh, shingles things like this that they tend to uh, light up much quicker whereas using a a concrete product obviously offers quite a bit more resistance to that type of um, asset loss. Mm, So so a better type of material or a more uh, resistant material. What does it do though as as far as uh, uh, cost and the time it takes to build a house? So currently 3D printing is approximately about the same or maybe about 15 to 20% less expensive than building using conventional structures in in British Columbia. Uh, I think that's partially because we're still at the beginning and there's there's a lot to be learned. Uh, you know, a lot of the co-contractors are not quite used to, to working around 3D printed components. So um, as time goes on and, and the skills build in the other trades, such as electrical and plumbing and, and how they coordinate their efforts with the 3D printer, uh, those costs can even start coming down uh, significantly uh, uh, more. Uh, but beyond that, the time to produce, produce a printed house is a fraction of what conventional construction is. You know, we can, once we have the slab, we can actually erect a structure, a livable structure in 24 to 48 hours um, uh, before the, uh, you know, the roofing elements and everything else goes on. So this is very, um, very fast in comparison to regular uh, stick frame construction, which could take, you know, three to four months to accomplish that same, uh, same achievement as far as the, the build process goes. Hmm. And and then I would imagine too that to, this is, so the 3D printing and that part of the building. But then we're still talking about or or the need for tradespeople when it comes to to finishing and uh, things like electrical and all of the other uh, things that a home would still need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the best way to sort of look at the what 3D printing offers is 3D printing is basically the same thing as a very large cinder block. So all of the other trades that exist on say a cinder block structure are still going to exist in a 3D printed structure. Uh, the big difference is, of course, uh, we can program the robot to leave openings and um, access for you know your your machine room and all of your sort of runs for electrical and plumbing in a way that uh, conventional cinder block um, makes much more difficult. And does it matter the size of the home or is there a, a size that works better for 3D printing? 
Definitely, there, there are some limitations. Currently, most structures worldwide are still only one story. Uh, uh, the way that we've done two-story buildings is by 3D printing the second floor on the ground and then using craning elements to, to lift it to the second floor for assembly. Um, the reason being is that the machinery is has to be as big as a house. And so, you know, having the, the equipment need to be set up on site, um, it's much, much faster if we're just towing up one of our um, 3D printers for single-story structures. We can be set up in about 30 minutes. But if you're going to be trying to 3D print a, a second story or a third story, now the size of these printers may take two to three weeks of, of uh, setup and tear down. So it's a significantly different operation when you're looking at larger buildings. Hmm. I, and I understand as well. So that was it the first 3D printed home in Canada was was here in BC about three years ago. Has much changed since then or is that kind of the prototype? Yeah, it's it's been a little bit slow to catch on in Canada. Um, just to be clear, our core competence is, is building the machinery itself. So when we 3D printed that house here in Nelson, the goal was to sort of showcase what the capabilities of the technology is. Uh, and we focus our energy mostly on on helping people who are looking to get machines um, into their uh, toolbox. But the uh, the I'd say the uptake of 3D printed houses in Canada is very slow compared to the United States or Europe or, uh, you know, we're doing quite a lot in Japan and Saudi Arabia and other parts of the world. And uh, there just seems to be a bit more of a conservatism towards construction in Canada. And why do you think that is? Um, people don't like change. In all honesty, I think that, that there's a, uh, if it's not broke, don't fix it type attitude in, in construction. Um, but, but the reality is we can see that, that climate change is showing that there is something broken in the way we construct homes right now. So this is a great opportunity for 3D printed concrete to, to really uh, push into the, the Canadian landscape, I'd say in the next couple of years. And like you said, there are other countries, uh, Japan, other countries where it seems like they've really embraced the technology uh, a lot faster. Well, I mean, it's a pretty rare situation that we have in British Columbia where 95% of our uh, province is crown land and it's predominantly covered in, in forest. So our access to cheap, if not uh, free lumber has, I think, changed the, the, the market conditions. That, that's not really fair to the rest of the, of the planet um, when, when you're comparing apples to apples. But the, um, the reality is the, these forests are burning down and we, we need them to capture carbon and, and to not be uh, cut down for houses. I think that's, the, I think that's what we're going to see going forward. You know, if, if, if trees have to, to come down, it's going to be because of fire, not because we need to keep making these massive clear cuts all over these small towns around BC. Hmm. And uh, and so do you see that then kind of uh, the way forward? And, and certainly we're dealing with wildfires right now and talking about uh, a state of emergency in this province. Does that kind of, do you think, open the door to talking more about this and this kind of technology? Uh, absolutely. Um, so we're in communication with the fire commissioner of British Columbia and we're hoping to help develop some different techniques for people to shore up. Um, their homes or to, if they're going to be doing um, any types of renovations that they might be able to have some more fire resistant facades or paneling using 3D printing techniques. Uh, we're working with um, UBC. I'm sure some of your listeners will know that uh, concrete is still a fairly major contributor to the CO2 emissions that, that humans are putting into the atmosphere. So uh, developing mixes that are lower CO2 contributors uh, is also, you know, a very important um, science that, that the material science lab at UBC is working on. Uh, there's there's definitely a few more things to, let's say, I's to dot and T's to cross before it's going to become widespread technology, but we're very, very close and, and it's pretty exciting to be involved in it. Ian Commission, thank you so much. Uh, very interesting stuff. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, we have seen footage of some of the devastation caused by various wildfires burning in British Columbia. We know structures have been lost in some areas as well. We know vehicles have also been destroyed. ICBC put out a bit of a reminder uh, a couple of days ago, uh, reminding people, make sure you have a plan uh, if you lose your driver's license, what you can do, and reminding people as well that basic auto insurance does not cover damage from wildfires, that you do need comprehensive or specified perils coverages from either ICBC or from another insurer. Well, joining us to talk more about to this is Trevor Halford, Shadow Minister for Transportation and Infrastructure with BC United. Trevor, thanks so much for coming on the show this morning. Thanks for having me, Jill. Appreciate it. Uh, is this a, a reminder, do you think, then, for people that uh, we are living in uh, times where we are seeing wildfires every year and, and making sure that uh, that they're up to date and they've got sufficient coverage? Um, I, I guess. Uh, you know, I think that part of the issue here is those, too, is that, um, you know, you're, you're looking at people that are in absolute crisis right now. So I think that... Uh, you know, um, optimally, we want to make sure people have every coverage they, they need. But again, um, I think it's on ICBC and the government to make sure, too, that they're working with, with communities, with affected people, um, you know, that, that may not have that coverage. I, I, I saw in the statement that you can't purchase that coverage if you're on evacuation order uh, until it's been lifted. And for a lot of people, um, they may have just been visiting. They may be there for a medical appointment. Um, when all this transpired. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that common sense prevails a little bit here as well, too. In that, and when you say common sense prevails, that, that ICBC waives the, the, that rule of not being able to purchase comprehensive if you're already under an alert or order or, or, or does something different? Yeah, like I, I think that if, you know, depending on the each, each individual situation, I, you know, we understand that the wildfires and they're becoming all too common right now. And I, I think that we can all agree when we see that. But uh, for a lot of people, I think that they are, you know, the, the statement that ICBC put out the other day, um, that may be helpful if it's been put out, um, you know, in January or, or February, um, or working with people in those communities to make sure that they're education, educated on uh, the type of insurance they may need when it comes to wildfires. Right. And and I would, I mean, I mean, we're talking about wildfires right now because the wildfires are, are burning. But I would think, too, if, if you have a vehicle, uh, you should know whether it's uh, whether it's wildfire fire season or not. You should know, shouldn't you, what comprehensive insurance is and what basic insurance is and what's covered. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you should. When you get your insurance, you should be educated on, on what your insurance covers. But Again, is there are some people here that have, have gone down there for whether it's a, a medical issue to visit a, a sick loved one or um, to support their family, and they may not have that coverage. So, again, um, you know, it's it's you know, I think that maybe it's time to look at the policy in terms of if there's evacuation orders of whether or not people will be able to kind of extend their coverage or. Or, or purchase additional coverage, but you know this is something where you're you're looking at families that could have a you know if they have a truck a fifty thousand dollar vehicle wiped out and not have the uh, not have the insurance to pay for it.
Right. Although, I mean, just to play devil's advocate on that, why why would you have a $50,000 vehicle and not have comprehensive insurance at all? Wouldn't that be kind of ridiculous to not have comprehensive insurance? Well, you know, to be honest with you, Jill, I think it comes down to every family's uh, decision, right? And, you know, that, that would be the most ideal case. And I can tell you, you know, some people that, you know, are struggling to make ends meet. And I, I know that trucks can be very expensive, but in some areas, their trucks is having a truck is an absolute necessity. So I, I think that, you know, it should come down to, you know, hopefully people make the right decisions when they purchase their insurance. But again, um, you know, I think part of it is I've, I've had since this uh, story came out, I've had people come up to me and they actually did not know that fire did not cover um, their basic insurance. So, you know, and these are people that are, you know, you, you think that might know that, but they don't. Um, so I, I think that there needs to be a little bit more education done on this by ICBC. Uh, Trevor, I'm curious as well, uh, your thoughts on uh, the declaration of the the state of emergency. And again, uh, we were talking uh, earlier today with Rob Shaw, a political uh, correspondent, and he was making the point that every time, which thankfully it's not that often, but every time something happens, whether it's COVID or wildfires, that the province is in a position to declare a state of emergency for the whole province, it does seem to get a bit political. And uh, there, there seems to be a reluctance to make that call. What are your thoughts on on kind of, I, I suppose you could call it the delay or the amount of time it took for the declaration of the state of emergency this time? Well, I, I think that, so first of all, and I don't want to get political on this because I think every, I hope every MLA is, is focused on the fires at hand right now and, and affecting uh, their, their individual communities. And, and, and I know that, but um, I think part of the, the challenge is, is that when you have ministers say that, uh, you know, a declaration of a state of emergency is not necessary, and then just two hours later you have the premier come out and say that they're going forward with it, I think that that shows a bit of a disconnect, right? And, uh, you know, I, I know that everybody's doing their best at this point, but it's having every tool in the toolbox necessary um, and having that... Uh, having that, uh, that declaration made, I think gives the province a, a few more tools and it, it's there now, but could it have been there earlier? Um, I think a number of people say that it could have been. And uh, your thoughts as well on uh, what we're also seeing as far as it, it's pretty amazing looking at some of the footage with the, the fire departments that have come from different parts of the province that are now uh, helping to fight these the, the wildfires, uh, whether it's in the Shoe Swamp, uh, other parts of the, Ogano- uh, of the Okanagan. Um, what are your thoughts on that as far as uh, just seeing the response to these fires? Yeah, yeah I, the, the, the men and women that are out there fighting every day are across not only the, the province, but across the country. Um, no, I'm seeing Surrey firefighters that have left. I've seen White Rock firefighters that have left, um, Coquitlam. And it's just, you know, and I saw the, the one firefighter from Williams Lake that, um, you know, on the news last night that, that got his time off in order to go and fight the fires. So I, I think that there's such a, it, it's such a pride that fills. But listen, I, you know, when I went to bed last night, you know, I, I thought about the number of people that weren't. And I saw on the newscast yesterday that, you know, there's people that are working over 24-hour shifts. And they're, they're just giving it all they can. So it's, it's you know, I almost feel uh, weird commenting on that because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to get my day started here. And 
And there's people that have been going about their day for about 36 hours. So, um, you know, I, I can't, I don't think there's enough gratitude in our province for the people that are fighting on the front lines right now. I, I, I really don't. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Trevor, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks, as always, for coming on the show. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in with head coach of the BC Lions, Rick Campbell, with us on this Monday morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you today? I'm very well. How about you? Doing all right. We had a late night coming back from Regina, but we're back uh back and going to get ready for the next one. Excellent. So uh, not uh, the outcome I'm sure you were hoping for with the the loss in Saskatchewan, but uh, what positives do you take from that? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, if you're a fan, it's, uh, it was an exciting game to watch. We're, we're disappointed we didn't get it done. We were down 31-13 to 13 going in the fourth quarter, and then we had the ball with a chance to get in field goal range to kick a field goal to win, and we just came up short. So I'm super proud of the way that the guys battled all the way till the end, and we just didn't start the way we wanted to. Fair enough, fair enough. That's still a pretty good way of looking at it. Uh, talk a bit about uh, Vernon Adams Jr., a season high, uh, 455 passing yards, a little bit banged up, but still very, very impressive. Yeah, he man, was he battling all the way till the end. He kind of had a, a thigh contusion thing going on that I know was painful for him, but he was able to play through it and yeah, he really rallied in the fourth quarter to, to try to, to get us the win, and um, he's played really well for us, and uh, we, we feel very lucky to have him. And uh, if we look ahead, uh, skipping ahead a little bit, uh, Saturday's home game uh, coming up, uh, Saturday, or sorry, uh, Saturday's uh, home game against uh, Beast, uh, against Hamilton, uh, what challenges yeah. are you looking at for the for that game? Yeah, so we play them Saturday at four, and it's the first time we've seen them this year. So we have not, uh, we haven't seen them. So it's a new game, new team, new week, and uh, they have some very good players. They haven't really got it all together as far as their record goes, but they have some very good players. So I know our guys are going to be excited to get back at it, and uh, we'll hit the practice field on uh, on Wednesday and, and get ready for the next one. And is there anybody specific that uh, you're worried about, or can you even admit to that? Um, Injury-wise? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nathan Cherry, a defensive lineman, we're gonna, he's going to get um, looked at, and so we'll see on him. We're hopeful that it's nothing too serious. But um, other than that, just kind of the normal uh, bumps and bruises from playing the football game, and our guys have a couple of days to, to rest and recover, and then we'll be back at it. And I understand, too, that Saturday is superhero night, which is always a very, very special night. What's going to be happening for that? Yeah, to, and the first responders, all that, which, as we all know, with what's going on in the province right now, they're uh, they're helping us out big time. So uh, I know there's there's things planned for that, and uh, um, obviously those people deserve all the recognition in the world. All right, and uh, so uh, first responders, a uh, tribute to the first responders as well, military, and like you said, uh, so much attention being focused on first responders uh, with the wildfires right now. So uh, an extra, extra special superhero night. Rick Campbell, thank you so much. Great to talk with you again. Yeah, thanks. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi.
We are hearing from fire officials, emergency officials in B.C. that it was a very smoky night in the central Okanagan area, but they have been able to make some progress when it comes to fighting those wildfires. There was a tweet shared on social media from the Central Okanagan Emergency Operations Centre talking about the positive advancements that have been made by crews, and that was happening yesterday. Joining us now to talk more about what's happening in West Kelowna is Gord Milsom, the mayor of West Kelowna. Thank you so much for taking some time again this morning. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. What is it like there today? Oh, well, there's still a lot of a lot of smoke. Can't, can't really see the, uh, you know, the, the, the hillside. So uh, a little cooler, uh, but uh, still a lot of smoke. Um, I had a chance to chat with our fire fire chief, and he indicated that the conditions didn't get any worse overnight. They, but our firefighters, they've been they've been busy doing like the hard, dirty work, a lot of backyard work where they're putting out hot spots. Uh, so they've been active active throughout the night. And is it uh, for, uh, like I said from the uh, emergency operations center? Uh, they talked a bit about the positive advancements uh, made by crews. Uh, I'm guessing the crews you're talking about doing that that work and, and working overnight yeah. that 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 is yeah. making a difference. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, firefighters here. Eight is about 500 firefighters, and we got we have support from. Uh, Fire, fire departments throughout the province, uh, you know, including Williams Lake, Quinnell, Burnaby, Surrey, Victoria, North Couch, and it just goes on. Um, so, no, they're, they're continuing the fight, and we have a news conference coming up here at 10 o'clock, and I hope to, to, to get a, certainly an update on the status of the wildfire. You know, it's an immense wildfire right at our borders. Uh, you know, it's over 11,000 hectares in size. And I know the focus has been on on the interface between the wildfire and the city of West Kelowna. It's the McDougall Creek wildfire. There's three wildfires in the area. And uh, eventually, uh, I imagine they, there's going to be plans to address the, the, the other perimeter areas of the wildfire. But uh, hopefully we'll get uh, an update, too, on the damage uh, that's been done to the community. And uh, so that's what I'm looking for. I, I, I'm, I, I know our residents as well want to know, you know, what houses have been damaged, where, what houses have been lost, what has been the impact on the infrastructure in our neighborhoods. Uh, so now that's that's information that hopefully will start coming our way so we can, you know, start informing uh, our residents that they may have uh, experienced property loss. And that's going to be, the, you know, difficult uh, times, uh, people realizing that, they don't have a home to go back to. Um, so that's the next step, and we can start planning uh, re-entry uh, for some of our residents to, to you know, go back to their homes if it's safe for them to do it. Uh, so still lots of work to be done mm. at this stage. And, and when you talk about that, too, as, as difficult as that must be for residents, uh, knowing that there is that possibility, I, I would imagine, though, it's also very difficult not knowing. And, and a lot of people have yeah. been talking about the fact that they, they just want to find out what it looks yeah. like and, and what that loss is. That's right. Well, a special team has come up actually from Vancouver called the Canada Task Force One. So that's a team of 50 members consisting of police officers, firefighters, engineers, doctors, paramedics, 
and they've uh, they've they're they started their the assessments their 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 work yesterday uh, going into our neighborhoods and I hope that we'll we'll get some of that information um, uh, at, the, at the at the ten o'clock uh, operational update and and it'll be you know that information will be will uh, start to be shared with our our, our residents. So we should hear pretty soon what, right. the, what the status is. Do you yeah. know if there have been any structures lost since the the initial uh, when we we actually saw some of that footage and you could see homes burning in, in some areas when the structures were lost at that point in the fire? Uh, do you know if there have been more structures lost since then? Uh, it's my understanding that there over the last forty eight hours there, there hasn't been. Uh, any further structures lost? Uh, that's that they that was reported to us over the last couple of uh, operational updates. So it was primarily in the first two days uh, of um, of the wildfire where, they, as you mentioned, that uh, structures were lost. Uh, so uh, no, not not in the last couple of days. Again, due to the incredible work of uh, of, our, of the various firefighting teams. You know, the heroic work of those firefighters, just amazing. Um, the number of homes that they've saved, as I mentioned, they're actually, you know, they're in the backyards of people's homes, putting the fires out, you know, the hedge fires, the trees, the whatever. That's that's where the battle is. And uh, they've saved, you know, so many homes by being there and, and uh, going from one backyard to the next putting out spot fires. It's just amazing. It really is when you when you think of it that way and that we, we've seen footage and when you picture of crews fighting wildfires, you don't often think of, like you just said, putting out hedge fires and doing that. But what an amazing way of, of saving these people's homes. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's been incredible. Yeah, so really proud of our firefighters, proud of uh, BC Wildfire. And again, the community, the support we got from other communities throughout the province has been incredible. Uh, our community has stepped up, you know, in a big way, uh, of bringing, bringing food and, uh, you know, our community members have, have uh, opened up the houses to those in need. Uh, you know, our local Salvation Army, Food Bank, Rotary Club, Lions Club, all kinds of organizations have stepped up to help our uh, our um, our residents, and uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks a lot to folks living in Vancouver for opening up your homes and and being there for us too. We really appreciate it. And do you have to wait, or will it be at the ten o'clock news conference? Do you think, or will people get more information, or is it even is it too soon to know uh, when the evacuation orders and alerts might be rescinded? Yeah, I think we'll get more information at 10 o'clock uh, through the um, Emergency Operations Center, the, 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 you know, their, their update. So I'm hoping that we're going to get uh, further information as to the status of, uh, of uh, you know, property, uh, you know, properties. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll start hearing about plans of, of uh, where it's safe, where people can go back to their homes. So uh, keep my fingers crossed that we can start getting that information because uh, I know that's the information that um, our residents uh, want to hear, and it's you know it's important. It's it's, it's a it's very anxious times. It's very emotional times, and uh, and the sooner that we can really know what's going on, uh, the sooner that we can can help people uh, with the recovery. 
Right. Because I know uh, some of the evacuees, people have been doing uh, whatever they can to try and get that information, whether it's using binoculars or uh, asking news crews or or getting uh, aerial footage. Uh, Will residents find out first, though, as far as uh, you're expecting more information at 10 o'clock, but will residents find out first before that information is made public? No, there'll be plans, I'm sure, to inform those that have been affected. And again, that's responsibility of the Emergency Operations Centre. So certainly they will be told before the general public. I mean, that's just the way it should be handled, right? If there's been any, uh, any, uh, if they've, you know, with regards to damage or lost properties. Um, Yeah, and in addition to that, uh, we need to find out, you know, what's the status of water lines, the sewers. They're apparently in some areas, power poles are down, the natural gas is, you know, lines have been disrupted, uh, parks have been destroyed. Uh, It just, uh, we have to find out what's going on. And that's why it's taken a bit of time to to be able to provide information because uh, the... um, uh, emergency uh, first responders haven't been able to go into those areas to do proper assessments. Uh, thankfully, the uh, the uh, Canada Task Force 1, again, has come up from Vancouver. These are specialists that deal with disaster situations. They're in there now uh, doing their assessments, so uh, we, we will start getting uh, information that uh, that uh, the public will know, um, not specific information, the specific information will be given to uh, the individual property owners. All right. Uh, Mayor Milsom will be uh, listening and uh, waiting for that new information. But thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank, thanks very much. Again, thanks for all the support from uh, Lower Mainland Vancouver. I appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this uh, is a pretty amazing story, and it answers the question, what does it take to survive in extreme environments with nothing but a few tools and your self-determination? Joining me on the line now is Alan Tenta, the winner of Alone Season 10. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, no problem. My pleasure. Well, it was uh, very exciting when it was announced that you were are the winner, a high school teacher from the Columbia Valley right here in BC. Uh, what was it like being part of this? Uh, maybe take us back to when you first started and, and what that was like taking part in this show. Well, it was, it, was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And just the last year and a half was just such a wild ride from the application process, which took months to finally getting the phone call that, I was selected for the show on July 1st, and then the preparations I had to do and the research on, on edibles that were available out there, uh, shelter types, uh, all sorts of things that I did a lot of research on. And then meeting all the contestants and uh, spending some time in orientation camp and then being dropped off in September and uh, with, with just your 10 items that you chose and the clothing that you'd selected and... Uh, getting started it was it was amazing and so you were uh, battling the harsh winter landscape of northern saskatchewan uh, you, when you talk about the things that you chose to take with you uh, did you choose wisely did you have the right things that you needed yeah I, I think if i had to do it again i wouldn't make any changes with my with my 10 items um the one i wasn't sure about was the axe uh, because i had a saw as well as one of my items but i really wanted to hang on to that axe 
to chop through the ice if I made it until freeze up so I could ice fish. So, hmm. And uh, you, I understand it got down to around minus 13. So it, you did make it to it uh, and have to deal with those very cold temperatures. Uh, I think it got a lot colder. Than I think it got down to minus 25. Okay. That's chilly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, what was it like? I know this had an impact uh, not only on, on the physical and, uh, you know, trying to get enough food, but a real impact as well on your mental health. Uh, you mean during the show? or, mm-hmm. or, or Yeah, well, I suppose after as well, but but while you were going through this and, and competing on the show. Yeah, the mental aspect definitely is, is one of the hardest out there. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of... I'm a student of the show and I've watched so many seasons and, and I try to prepare for that, even though you can't really pre- prepare for it. I, I did some research on, on meditation and, and I think one of the big things that helped get me through those tough times was realizing that this is short term. It's going to be over soon. And I just kept saying, this is short term. It's going to be over. This is a once in a lifetime experience. Uh, I want to seize this opportunity and push myself as far as I can go. So I just kind of self-talked myself through that, that, it's going to be over soon, and if I do go before I'm completely ready and I don't push as far as I think I could, then I'm going to be upset with myself when I get home. As soon as I get home, everything's just going to turn back to normal, you know, go, go back to work, and life will just get back to normal quite quickly. So that's kind of how I got myself through those those tough times, you know. Hmm. And I, I, I would imagine, too, that the, those strategies as well in that you're out there by yourself and you have to, to make it work. That's got to be, I mean, uh, without other people to talk to or, or talk things through, that must have been challenging. How, how did you prepare for something like that? How did I prepare for, for the dark times? Sorry, the dark times and, and just the, the entire thing as far as being being alone as the as the show is called and not having anybody uh, to to even kind of lean against or, or even talk yeah. to okay well i i my, my kids are, are a little bit older like my my son is at university my daughter was in grade 12 almost 18 years old so i knew they were they were going to be okay and my wife was supporting me 100 percent, and i knew that they were behind me and wanted me to push out there as long as I could. So leaving for the show, I kind of, everything at home was, was good. Everything at home was settled and, and I knew I had their support and, and they were happy with me being out there as far as I could and completely, or they were supporting me 100%. So that definitely helped. I understand, too, uh, that uh, you uh, had a medical evaluation or, or the evaluation through this process. Um, there were concerns about, I think, dehydration, about the, the weight loss that you uh, had, uh, that you had, the weight you had lost. Was there ever a point when, when you felt like maybe you weren't going to, to be the winner or you might have to quit? Uh, well, I had a plan. I, I knew since, like, when, when it got really cold uh, after about day 50, uh, I, I had quite a bit of stored fish. I had I had fish to about day sixty nine, and so I, I knew that I had enough fish, and I, and I I was I felt kind of fairly confident that nobody else was pr- procuring any more food since it got really cold, and I figured if I had to just push um, all the way through to I knew I'd be good to day sixty eight. So, but. Um, for the last medical check, like I don't know if, if you've watched the show or not, but near the end, I I 
did what I call a skinny check. Because there's no mirrors out there, so I took off my shirt and I looked in the camera, then I played the camera back just to see what my body looked like. And I had lost most of my fat, but I didn't think I was in a lot of danger. I, was I nervous about the last med check? Uh, uh, yeah, I was a little bit nervous, but uh, after my wife came and surprised me, I did talk to the med team and they said uh, I wouldn't have been pulled that day, but they were going to increase my medical checks to, you know, every three days or so instead of every three weeks. So, yeah, uh, I, I kind of lost the question and all that response. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's just that, that I, if you were worried that, that you might not be able to continue on, uh, but uh, you did. Uh, and uh, as we know, you, you are the winner of that, uh, of this season. What do you do with the prize money? That's uh, a lot of money, $500,000 U.S. Uh I haven't made any firm plans with it yet. Um, definitely going to help my kids out. The first thing I'm going to give my kids some money to uh, help them with because they're both in university. Uh, other than that, it's just, it's yeah, I'm, I haven't made any firm plans around that yet. Well, you've got uh, you've got time, I think, to figure that out, uh, Alan. What an amazing story! And again, congratulations on your win and being on the show. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Nice chatting with you. This is Mornings with Simi. 